Hello, Money on the Left and Superstructure listeners. This is Scott Ferguson. I am pleased to introduce part one of a two-part lecture, mini-lecture series on Pixar's breakaway hit, the 1995 film Toy Story. This is part of a longer series that we've been releasing at Money on the Left uh, on the neoliberal blockbuster. This was uh, a series of recordings that I put together for a course I taught back in fall of 2020. Uh, since then, we have been releasing uh, this series of lectures through our Money on the Left and Superstructure Patreon, which many of you are aware of. Um, we decided uh, we would not just offer a teaser or a preview of the Toy Story lectures, but actually just release them entirely to the public just to give those of you who haven't been following along uh, a little bit more of a deep plunge into the kind of work uh, that goes on in this lecture course. Um, if you can afford to support the work we're doing here at Money on the Left and Superstructure, please go to our, our Patreon and, and donate what you can. That gives you full access to premium content like this series and, uh, and other forthcoming things. If you are experiencing any kind of financial hardship and would like access to this material, please just reach out to us. Twitter is always a great place to do that, and we will make sure that nobody is left behind. Before we move on to the lecture itself, I just want to say a few things about the course in general uh, to kind of catch up those who haven't been uh, plugging into this neoliberal blockbuster series. Essentially, um, I'm a film scholar, and one of my research areas is to think about the rise of and the meaning of uh, blockbuster cinema. Now, blockbuster cinema can mean a lot of things in a lot of different contexts, and it's a history that actually goes back uh, across media uh, to at least the 1940s. But where I pick up the story and what I'm interested in specifically is the new Hollywood cinema that was created essentially, at least originally, by Steven Spielberg and George Lucas in the mid to late 1970s. We're talking about films like Jaws and Star Wars. These are special effects-driven uh, action spectaculars that really revive the Hollywood box office, which had been fledgling for years and years and years. and. These films have been taken on and interpreted in all kinds of ways, and I'm perfectly uh, willing to, um, you know, accept and, and think about all kinds of different readings, whether it's, you know, about social identity or different narrative strategies. Uh, but what interests me is the change in aesthetics, the change in how this Hollywood cinema feels as opposed to how Hollywood cinema felt in a predominant way uh, in the decades before. Now, it's a complicated history, and earlier in the, the course, I actually lay out all these complexities, but let's just say, for, for the sake of simplicity, the dominant Hollywood cinema of what's called the classical era from the 20s through, let's say, the early 60s had a particular feel. It was constructed in such a way that was bringing together audio and visual elements in abstract relationships in order to construct different forms of space and time. 
And this was a cinema that was, I would say, happy to flaunt its abstractness, even as it's creating more or less linear uh, narratives and continuous senses of spatiotemporal experience. Well, this gets all shaken up during the late 1960s, early 1970s. There's lots of influence from experimental documentaries and art cinema from Europe and around the world and avant-garde cinema and the kind of continuity aesthetics of the classical Hollywood period are thoroughly challenged and they're thoroughly challenged in Hollywood itself by a group of uh, filmmakers who are coming from outside of the studio system, largely from television, but also from uh, film schools. Often they're referred to as film school brats. And out of this kind of experimental soup made up of people like Martin Scorsese, Arthur Penn, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, emerges some of their friends, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, and they kind of take that that post-continuity or discontinuity cinema of the uh, this kind of rebellious uh, cinema of Hollywood in the, in the late 60s and early 70s, and they give it a twist. And they kind of come back to pop cultural roots, pop cultural genres, uh, action adventure uh, as a mode, number one, but then also mixing like lower genres, genres that were usually thought of as being kind of chintzier, like sci-fi and uh, swashbucklers and uh, horror films. And they twist it all in this new way. And the new way, on my argument really does not want to have anything to do with abstraction. It rejects abstraction. And the way it rejects abstraction is by creating a physically, materially immersive experience that is fully volumetric, that is ensconcing the spectator in surround sound, and is essentially creating an experience that I have termed hyper-Newtonian. hyper because it's hyperbolic, it's larger than life, it's not just straightforward realism. But Newtonianism, because it's essentially um, obeying Newton's uh, way of uh, conceiving of the cosmos, of the the universe. and my argument about this is that, yes, of course, it's thrilling, it's fun, it, you know, it shapes all of our childhoods and our lives, and it's, it's complicated and it has lots and lots of meanings. But I critique this cinema, and I critique it because it's so anxious about and wants to repress abstraction so much that it ends up reducing social relations, technological relations, political and economic relations to direct material contact, direct material immediacy. And as a modern monetary theorist, as a practitioner and activist around MMT, this concerns me because money as a boundless public utility is an abstraction and it works by coordinating relationships between people who are interdependent on one another at a distance. That doesn't make it neutral. That doesn't make it nice. But it means that what it is is an accounting abstraction that's about coordination and provisioning, and it can be done in one way or another way, and it can be contested, and it can be shaped in all kinds of ways that can be made just. 
But what happens is when you deny abstract the abstractness of media, whether it's motion picture media or monetary media, you lose the possibilities, the potentials, the plasticity, the reorganizational capacities of abstraction itself. And so for me, I think it's no accident that the new Hollywood blockbuster and its hyper-Newtonian physics arises in lockstep with the turn to neoliberal political economy. Now, I'm no apologist for mid-century, what might be called military Keynesianism, uh, which was, you know, white supremacist and patriarchal. Uh, but looking back, there was something about that cinema that was a little bit more open, a little bit more abstract, a little bit more playful. And I think especially in retrospect, um, there are plenty of film scholars and critics at the time and now who have important critiques to make of that classical Hollywood cinema because it was problematic. But in hindsight, it seems that there's something that we've lost. And I would not argue that we should go back to that. But what I think we have lost that was there was a certain kind of openness to cinematic abstraction. And I think it's interesting that that corresponded to uh, a pre-neoliberal moment where um, there was more unequal but more social provisioning going on in a more avowed way uh, through the role of the U.S. government. So um, what I'm doing in this class is I'm going through making this argument, going through individual kind of touchstone blockbusters from the late 1970s to the present to, to flesh out this argument, but also to kind of tell a different story of neoliberalism from the point of view of uh, a, a pro-abstraction MMT uh, uh, analysis, essentially. And um, what I'm doing in this particular lecture that you're going to hear in just a moment is turning to Toy Story, the breakaway hit of Pixar that really changed the face of feature-length uh, Hollywood animation forever, um, you know, catapulted Pixar into this new, you know, category of, uh, you know, stardom as a company. Um, and um, this is part of a broader transition to more and more digital technology in Hollywood. It is certainly not any kind of neat origin. As you'll hear in the lecture, the story of digitization in Hollywood is a very messy, complex one, like any origin story is going to be. And that's what I'm going to talk about in the beginning of this lecture. Then I kind of uh, move into some of the history of Pixar uh, as a company, as a kind of political economic project, but also uh, its, its technology, how it's developing hyper-Newtonian um, algorithms, essentially, in order to transform animation uh, from something that's more abstract into something that feels more like uh, concrete volumetric puppetry, which I am critical of. Um, and then uh, we take on one significant scholar's uh, interpretation of digital Hollywood cinema named Stephen Prince, who I show has a lot to teach us, but also has a lot of blind spots. And really tracking those blind spots uh, I find to be helpful for um, kind of elaborating my own critical analysis of Toy Story. So that's the first lecture. 
the second lecture is going to dive headlong into uh, the the film itself and and read and interpret its narrative, its characters, and how it's sort of allegorizing or trying to make sense of its new popular form of um, of digital animation. But that'll be next time. Uh, in the meantime, sit back, relax and uh, enjoy this uh, part one of my lecture on Toy Story. I have, in my book, I've tried to elicit the notion called the central dogma of computer graphics. The central dogma says we shall make models of the, of the real world using Euclidean geometry. We shall project that model into two-dimensional space using Renaissance perspective. And it shall honor the light, the light fields and gravity and so forth shall honor Newtonian physics. Hello, this is Dr. Scott Ferguson. We are back for yet another lecture on the Hollywood blockbuster. We're turning this week to Pixar's Toy Story of 1995. What you just heard were the words of computer graphics pioneer and Pixar founder, Alvy Ray Smith, who was offering a pretty rare direct statement of the underlying principles, or as he puts it, uh, the central dogma of the mainstream digital animation and effects that he himself helped to bring into being. One can find this dogma everywhere, However, mostly it comes out in assumptions and are articulated, um, let's say, implicitly and indirectly rather than so explicitly and so ball-facedly. So to reiterate, the central dogma concerns a commitment to linear, so-called Euclidean geometry, you could also call it Cartesian geometry, uh, projecting it in a volumetric sense into what's called a Renaissance perspective or Renaissance space, uh, a very not only continuous but contiguous way of organizing space and also time, uh, and then finally subjecting all of the movements within that volumetric space to various forces, um, including, as he says, uh, gravity, but he also makes room for others as well. So we're turning to Toy Story this week because not only um, was it a successful blockbuster and a, a watershed film that we want to think through, but also it'll help ground our own exploration of a historical transformation in the Hollywood blockbuster toward digitization, digitizing in particular feature-length animation, and visual effects. If you're not aware, Toy Story is widely regarded as the first Hollywood full-length digital cartoon, digital effects-driven cartoon. And so it's a, a, a great film to take on to get at these broader questions about digitization and the Hollywood blockbuster. 
this historical transformation or shift to digitization, so we're all on the same page, is not simple. It's not direct. It didn't happen overnight. The digitization of the moving image in its mainstream feature length um, representations um, took a really long time to develop. It was really uneven and it included a whole host of very different digital technologies and techniques um, developed and put into practice at different times and for different reasons. So just for some examples, we've seen that the first Star Wars A New Hope you know, didn't have a lot of um, computer or digital technology in it, but it did use computer-assisted motion control to create mobile and dynamic composite shots that really unlocked the camera uh, as it had previous, previously been locked down uh, in effect shots and uh, really exploited the z-axis. I also briefly mentioned that in Star Wars A New Hope, uh, Lucas commissioned a wireframe, a, a moving wireframe Death Star sequence uh, for this sort of training video that they uh, put on for the rebels when they're gearing up to, to attack the Death Star just before the final climactic sequence. And that was commissioned to be made by a man who I don't think I mentioned at the time, whose name is Larry Cuba. And Larry Cuba was a professor at the University of Illinois. Uh, he was a scientist. He was an engineer. He was a computer scientist. After A New Hope, Lucasfilm invested in a lot of research and development um, because George thought it was very important to do R&D, also because he could now afford to because he has made a lot of money on A New Hope. And uh, with this uh, R&D investment, uh, several pieces of digital technology come into being. You see the emergence of digital editing and digital sound mixing technology but we are very far away still from, uh, from Pixar and what we typically call digital visual effects or digital mise-en-scene or digital animation or digital cartoon making. When it comes to, let's say, digital cinematography, um, let's say live action digital cinematography, uh, to take another example of digitization, that's not going to emerge in the industry or at least become an industry standard until the late 2000s. And this happens again in the wake of George Lucas uh, pushing for uh, changes um, to be adopted, developed, standardized, etc. And at that time, uh, George Lucas was making his uh, prequel series of Star Wars films and he really challenged uh, and cajoled uh, the Panavision company that makes um, the, the most widely used cameras in, in Hollywood and around the world, motion picture cameras, to develop a really high resolution digital technology for cinematography um, that went well past any of the um, existing technology uh, in terms of it meeting the particular standards that uh, George Lucas uh, had set out. Uh, conventionally speaking, when we talk about and think about the digitization of the blockbuster, um, that's really 
that's really um, uh, something that occurs in the late 80s, but really takes off in the 1990s. And that's, when we say that, what we mean really is the digitization of visual effects and animation, okay? So, you know, I think we can heuristically or, you know, uh, kind of imprecisely talk about the digitization of the blockbuster and sort of mean the digitization of effects of um, of animation, of environment creation, all all of these kind of on-screen elements, and and be be pretty safe. I just wanted to start us off by um, noting that what it means to turn analog into digital equipment and when it happens doesn't happen all at once, and certainly doesn't all happen in the 1990s. Steven Spielberg's 1993 film, Jurassic Park, is commonly understood as a watershed film for digital effects and animation for the live action blockbuster, and we're gonna study that next week. But um, even though I've organized this course mostly as a chronological history, I decided to swap these out for one another or, or do the the later film earlier, Pixar's 1995's Toy Story, rather than starting with uh, Jurassic Park, um, so that we can tell the story and kind of set out the question of digitization first through, through Toy Story, and then have that kind of basis um, there for us when we then go and approach Jurassic Park. But before we get into uh, the 1990s and uh, Pixar and Toy Story, uh, I wanna tell you a little bit about the history of computer animation and effects and where it all comes from. And for that, you have to go back and recognize that this stuff goes, goes far back and it goes far back even to the 1940s and the 1950s. And it does so not actually in Hollywood, but in government research, in the military, in academia, uh, and then also uh, in experimental film contexts. Basically, computer graphics and animation result from massive government investment and support for uh, the post-war economy, and in particular, the military-industrial complex. It is a meeting of art and science as traditionally conceived uh, that was celebrated throughout the mid-century period. You have government uh, investing directly in public institutions, and in the military, you also have government investing um, by way of grants to so-called private uh, organizations and corporations. Two of the most important private um, firms that took massive uh, grants from the federal government to basically engage in research and development um, across technologies, not just computers and graphics and animation, are Bell Labs and Xerox PARC. Um, through the Advanced Research Projects Agency, or ARPA, um, a computer uh, department uh, um, that was aimed toward research and innovation was set up at the University of Utah. Uh, and 
really the story of computer animation effects tracks with the broader story of the of the transformation from the robust military industrial complex uh fairly well supported um white middle class patriarchy to to what we call the neoliberal turn toward privatization so-called deregulation um etc so what happens is is in this process the innovation in computers computer graphics and animation that emerges from ongoing public finance and support through years of non-commercial research and development um, gets taken up by entrepreneurs and private private actors and turned increasingly toward private purposes and private profits and commercialization um, and um, and even even all the while as government is still supporting this stuff in a variety of ways so you can you can think about the history of computer graphics and animation as part of the neoliberal privatization of public goods in a way um, one historical through line is the development of uh, the graphic user interface or the gui um, which was invented by multiple people, but one of the major uh, players in this was a man named Ivan Sutherland and his students at the University of Utah. Uh, we still use GUIs today. You know, you're probably um, listening to uh, this lecture uh, through a device that has a graphic user interface. Um, and to give an example of how the graphic user interface gets um, gets commercialized and privatized for private purposes and profit, the GUI was uh, commercialized by uh, Steve Jobs at Apple Computer, um, and uh, you know we now we think of the 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 visual display and the animation of that display as being something associated with private companies like. You know Microsoft and and Apple, but it actually arose from um, uh, intense government's spending and lots of kind of open and playful R and D that that wasn't actually um, um, pinned down by um, the pressures of of private profit making. A second through line in this history of computer animation uh, involves the the development of various kinds of scientific models and games. Uh, sometimes training games, sometimes games for entertainment. Uh, another major uh, element in all this is uh, the creation of flight simulators uh, in the military and especially for the Air Force for training purposes. Uh, so that's that's another way that we see computer graphics and animation emerging in mid-century. And then a third through line uh, is you know motion picture production. Um, very often we're talking about abstract experimental films, short films, uh, pioneered by people like John Whitney Sr. Uh, some of you who have taken uh, the history course that I teach, history of uh, global moving images from 1950s to the present, um, might have studied John Whitney Sr.'s work with me. Uh, if you if you haven't, but you might in the future, you know, you can you have that to look forward to. Um, Lillian Schwartz was a, a, a woman who uh, also worked in this uh, sphere of abstract experimental computer animation in um, mid-century. And then uh, another filmmaker, um, abstract filmmaker named Stan Vanderbeek, who I also teach in the uh, history course. 
So all of these folks are making short films. They're coming out of the world of experimental cinema and abstract animation, and they're taking up computers as new tools to create those um, those those kind of new ways of exploring abstraction. And it's sort of, another thing I should say is that all of these contexts, you know, they, they have their own kind of uh, spheres, but then they overlap, right? I mean, people, uh, folks at all these different places are talking to one another, some more than others, and they're making connections. And I would say that it's out of this third context of, filmmaking, but it's also connected to the others, um, that the early founders of Pixar emerge. And those early founders are two men uh, named Ed Catmull, and the other one is Alvy Ray Smith, who we've already heard from thus far. Both Catmull and Smith grew up loving animation, but uh, they never really felt like they were um, absolutely uh, talented. Uh, they were good enough, but they weren't um, fully talented enough to really um, become full-time professional animators. And so they decided early on, uh, both of them, to pursue degrees in physics and engineering. And, you know, I, given, given the arguments of this class um, that uh, the blockbuster and then the digital blockbuster is organized around uh, physics or a hyper Newtonian hyperbolic physics. Um, to me, it comes as no surprise to learn or be reminded that um, the, the people who are principally responsible for most of the technology that makes not only animated blockbusters, but live action effects driven blockbusters um, come out of physics and come out of uh, engineering, a very you know, mechanistic a way of seeing the world. In the 1970s, Catmull and Smith begin to develop some of the pioneering technology for computer graphics and animation for which they will become known. And then they come together for the first time collaborating in 1975 at a private college uh, in the Northeast called New York Tech. And this private college um, was founded by uh, an investor who really loved Disney animation and he thought with the emergence of and the, the increasing powers of the computer and remember this is we're still not quite at the moment of uh, the personal computer right when we think of computers at this moment we're thinking of relatively like large computers and large labs um, not something that can you know sit on a desk right we don't have a desktop computer at this point. We're on the verge, but not quite there. So this founder of this college um, creates a computer graphics lab, and his dream was to develop the technology and have students and professors uh, and others work together to produce their own Disney-style animated films and using this computer technology and then, you know, selling them and getting them distributed. Uh, this never really came to pass, but he put a lot of uh, investment into it, and uh, Smith and Catmull spent some time there uh, developing their technologies even more. Then, after the success of Star Wars A New Hope, Lucas, as I said, is investing in all kinds of research and development, um, and that includes you know, setting up 
companies like Lucasfilm and Industrial Light and Magic. Um, and he reaches out to Cat Mullen Smith and says, hey, why don't you come to uh, Northern California? We're setting up, you know, we're setting up a whole group here and we'd love to fund you and you can do some research and development in what came to be called the Computer Graphics Group. The Computer Graphics Group at ILM or the Computer Graphics Group with, with Lucasfilm. At ILM, Catmull and Smith were given resources uh, with which to research and to experiment. That said, Lucas himself was really just looking for the kind of highly photorealist uh, technologies um, that he that he had been working with in the first Star Wars, and he basically never made use of this computer graphics group and what they were designing. And they were eager. I mean, they would present stuff to him all the time that they were so excited about. And Lucas kind of just shrugged and said, yeah, great, keep working, keep working, um, back to the drawing board, etc." There are a couple of standout examples here that I'd like to talk about. Um, one is they made a very uh, physics-based um, flyover sequence for the film Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan, which came out in 1982. And um, in the story, this sequence was supposed to demonstrate something called the Genesis effect, and it involves essentially flying over a planet and explosions and, um, you know, again, very hyper-Newtonian or proto-hyper-Newtonian uh, forms. Uh, and um, it was shot, um, or it was made to look like it was a kind of point of view shot of a of some kind of spacecraft that's flying to and over and around uh, a planet and then it was also um, um, a kind of innovator for um, developing what's called fractal, fractal geometry uh, for generating a, a landscape. Uh, if uh, you're interested in uh, what this looked like, um, you can check out uh, in the module uh, for for this week, um, Toy Story. You can look at, uh, I have a, a video linked there in recommended viewing. And in, in that, it's basically uh, a making of the Genesis effect sequence where you'll not only see the Genesis effect sequence as it looked in the film, but you'll have you know, there's a voiceover narrator that's telling you how they made it and why it was important. And um, I don't have time to work through a close reading of those uh, graphics and those aesthetics there, but it, I think, is a worthwhile exercise, especially if you're somebody who's going to write about digital animation and the di digital blockbuster. Um, that's an important early example of digital animation from the group that eventually becomes Pixar. Another great example of what um, the computer graphics group at Lucas was working on and managed to sell um, outside uh, of the Lucas company, at least eventually, um, was something called the CAPS system. And what the CAPS system was is a scan and paint system that was designed to um, help with 
uh, the process of traditional 2D animation. It allowed, as the name suggests, it allowed uh, animators to scan the, their own 2D drawings and have them digitized and then you could manipulate them in the computer and then also you could do the painting process which usually took you know hours and hours and it was often kind of farmed out and you know there was a gender division of labor where men did the drawing and women did the painting um, this was um, basically tr made possible to transfer that labor into the computer and, and it was made more automated and um, it could save a lot of time and the computer graphics group folks um, developed this and eventually were able to sell this to Disney, to, to Walt Disney Animation, uh, and they, they picked it up. Now, throughout this period when Catmull and Smith are in Northern California, um, you remember they love animation and they love Disney, and they made frequent trips to Disney Studios in Burbank uh, in Southern California, from Northern California. I mean, they, I think they tried to get there at least once a year, if not more. They wanted to work with Disney. They wanted to work for Disney. But the studio was basically uninterested at that time in, you know, the late 70s, early 80s, in using computers to make animation. I mean, they just thought that it didn't make any sense and nobody would like that. And, you know, they perhaps in a certain sense, rightly so, um, understood that the culture associated Disney animation with warm, soft, cuddly, cute, you know, fun, exciting things. And they associated computers with engineering in the military industrial complex and science and, you know, IBM and you know, massive corporations. Not that Disney wasn't a massive corporation, um, but that wasn't its, its, uh, its image. Uh, so they, they really didn't want to have anything to do with it. Um, but eventually they they um, got on board and Disney agreed to buy the the cap system the scan and paint system and um, this really gets going in uh, the later 1980s and this enabled Disney animators to digitize their traditional 2d hand-drawn animation and really uh, kind of amp up their production pipeline and 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 this led to um, a lot of changes. Um, the cap system uh, was sold for three point nine million dollars, so a, a good a good chunk of change. And yeah, it it it, it costs and time were saved. And um, the, Disney started painting in the computer rather than by hand. And uh, another major change here is that it it allowed for because of the cost saving and the time savings. Um, and and the new possibilities of the equipment altogether, it allowed for um, many more scenes and sequences where uh, layering and a manipulation of multiple layers at once um, were were possible. Now, what's interesting about this is that the whole time Disney is trying to keep this cap system a relative secret. Um, there will be like leaks about it, but there and the industry people in the industry start to kind of know about it. But as far as like popular culture is concerned, or or in advertising these films, they don't advertise these films as digital. They don't advertise them as computer made. Um, and you know, one could say that 
uh, this cap system could have been used in any number of ways, um, but it turns out that if you actually look at the films that are associated with the cap system, um, they start to look and feel more and more hyper-Newtonian. And, you know, I don't know, I don't think it's fair to just say, well, the cap system caused this. Uh, I think they use this, the cap system to create a more hyper-Newtonian form of animation. Uh, and, you know, that probably has less to do with caps and more to do with the fact that we are a decade into the hyper-Newtonian blockbuster and they're seeing that the taste of live action blockbusters is going in this hyper-Newtonian direction. So why wouldn't we start making more hyper-Newtonian uh, films in our traditional 2D animation uh, production pipeline? So this all begins on Rescuers Down Under in the late 1980s. And then if the Caps tool becomes important on The Little Mermaid and Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast and The Lion King and so on and so on. And these films come to constitute what uh, comes to be known as the Disney Renaissance, the rebirth of Disney. Uh, the idea here is that there was a golden age of Disney. Um, and uh, after the golden age of Disney, there was a kind of, um, you know, an aesthetic and also industrial and economic stagnation. But with films, especially starting with The Little Mermaid and Aladdin, um, they, they seem to have a, a whole new kind of life and energy aesthetically, and uh, they were doing a lot better at the box office as a consequence of this. Now, in order to understand how the cap system helps turn 2D Disney Renaissance animation into hyper-Newtonian animation, you have to contextualize this in the history of the Disney studio and its aesthetics, and also more broadly, the history of animation. Now, we can't go too far into this, but you know, as many of you who have taken courses with me, um, it's pretty uh, well understood using different kinds of language um, that the bases of animated movement are essentially abstract. And, in and through the history of animation, yes, you have all kinds of experiments, some that seem more um, oriented toward physical movement, others that are oriented toward more, more, um, let's say, uh, they flaunt abstraction more. There's, a, I think, a general understanding of and a celebration of the fundamentally abstract nature of cinematic uh, animated movement. Well, you see this in the early years of Disney animation. Uh, we're talking back in the 1920s and early 1930s. Um, the Disney company, uh, very small at that point, is producing um, wildly kind of abstract vaudeville-esque cartoons. They're not, um, you know, what we would call abstract animation. Um, they, they involve particular characters and, you know, um, narratives and those kinds of interactions, but they're nevertheless kind of flaunting their um, their playfulness, their abstractness, um, a, a kind of very experimental relationship to the way that movement is um, being created uh, as an experience. And certainly they have no kind of overriding allegiance to um, you know, any of the things that Albie Ray Smith is talking about um, 
in that clip that I started this lecture with. You know, they're not, they don't care about Euclidean geometry. Um, they don't, they're not obsessed with Renaissance space and um, gravity is, you know, just one element among many that you can kind of mess with if you want to, but it's certainly not the end all be all, nor are any other physical forces. Um, you do see the development of what's called squash and stretch techniques. Um, this is usually involving a particular figure and a figure will be squashed and stretched in accordance to uh, how it is moving around in relationship to other things and in, in the greater world. Often this is a way of simulating movement and a sense of gravity. Um, but, but as I am stressing, um, this is usually a kind of light and exaggerated process, um, not one um, that, that looks or feels hypernewtonian in the kind of blockbuster sense. You see a little bit more so-called naturalism uh, developing in the late 1930s and into the 40s when the, the Disney studio um, enters into its kind of classical golden era. This really is inaugurated by two films. One is a short called The Old Mill in 1937, and then uh, the feature, uh, the first animated feature that they produce, um, which was Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, also in 1937. And, you know, this starts an era of, let's say, um, a little bit more of, of a kind of naturalism, but it's a, a loose and light naturalism. And um, while it's governed by squash and stretch animation, um, it's also playing with the plasticity of the image, the plasticity of movement, um, and is not going to take gravity as like the, the final word on anything. And um, another thing here is that sound image relations remain pretty abstract. You still have uh, kind of vaudeville-esque um, sound effects that, that are more are more kind of zany or interpretive that are not meant to um, be 100% um, physically faithful to what we're seeing on screen, but rather bring a kind of um, abstract dynamism and, and expression and uh, character to what's happening on the screen. Um, and then sort of mid-century modernism becomes more and more, I think, relevant for uh, Disney animation. And you see this more and more where um, the naturalism that had been developed in the you know late 30s and the 40s, by the time you get into the 50s and early 60s, um, you, you've got a, a kind of a new turn to abstraction, but it's, it's an abstraction that is sort of more in line with um, sometimes explicitly, sometimes only tangentially, but more in line with the kinds of mid-century modern designs that we've talked about, whether it's, you know, the atomic age and the space age kinds of designs or um, other things like that. There are countless examples that I like to point to uh, of the, the lingering playfulness and abstractness of, uh, of so-called naturalistic Disney animation during this period from the 50s and 60s. I'll just name a few. Uh, there's this wonderful moment in Cinderella that uh, I like to share with students and some of you have probably heard about this and even and seen it before. Uh, so this is a moment when 
some of her Cinderella's mice friends are trying to help her out. Uh, Cinderella is locked up uh, high up in a room um, by the evil stepmother and the the assistant to the king is going around to all the households where there are young maidens um, trying the the lost glass slipper on the feet of each one of these young women um, with the idea uh, perhaps dubious <laughs> that whosoever foot this glass slipper fits is the mysterious woman who the prince spent the time with uh, and fell in love with just you know just not that long ago um, and in this particular moment so she's trapped away Cinderella is the the evil step uh, mother is trying to get uh, get the the king's assistant to you know try these shoes on um, her her own daughters and that's not you know working out uh, the key to the door that's keeping Cinderella away you know and away from being able to try on the shoe herself or the slipper herself is in the stepmother's pocket and the mice are trying to get get into the pocket to um to to get it well anyway one of them ends up inside a teacup and the stepmother it starts to offer this king's assistants some tea uh, and she basically says you know would you would you like some tea and the the stepmother is pouring this piping hot tea that is going to scald this poor this poor mouse all over the mouse's body um this tea is coming out in a big drop and um uh, it's a it's about to to hit the mouse the mouse is sucking in its stomach in kind of abstract and you know not physiologically correct ways and then all of a sudden the king's assistant says oh no 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 i'm fine and at that moment um the the drop the piping hot droplet which by any kind of you know gravitational physics um that that we would associate with like you know the physical science or or the hypernewtonian blockbuster that drop should have been too far out uh to have basically done anything but just fall down and scold this poor mouse but instead it's like it's it, it gets sucked up and what it what it's like it's as if that droplet becomes animated and has a kind of life or mind of its own and and it's almost like it's a very passing moment but it's like it it decides ah well i'm no longer gonna drop down i'm just gonna suck back up because obviously he doesn't want any of me he doesn't want any tea and it's it, it is a passing moment it's not that big of a deal but it's one of many moments that you can find throughout 50s and 60s um um, more naturalistic golden age Disney feature-length animation that is still still caught up in and flaunting the the abstractness of movement and all the possibilities that that uh, entails. Um, I think another way in which abstraction plays out uh, during this period and really you know mid-century animation in general is, is through uh, the development of what's called multi-plane animation 
Um, the Disney company did not invent multiplane animation, but they had arguably the most money and resources to flaunt it. So uh, multiplane animation um, involved a, a very large camera rig and uh, that has multiple layers. Um, and in fact, Julie Chernock uh, refers to multiplane animation when she talks about um, some of the um, effects work for, for Star Wars and New Hope and um, uh, the motion control rig because some of that same technology was retooled for that. Uh, but basically, it allowed animators to create um, multiple layers using clear cells, um, not just opaque white paper, and la layer those cells one on top of the other. This created um, a system of modular uh, transformation where you can change out and transform and make movement on one layer but not another. You can move layers closer and further away from one another to create depth effects. But these depth effects, if you go back and you look, are not really the same as the kind of z-axis effects that you'll get in the hypernewtonian digital blockbuster. These depth effects really feel like um, um, they are two-dimensional layers that are being slid in and out and in front and behind of one another. It's a kind, it's a kind of diorama effect, um, which both at the same time suggests depth but also suggests abstraction and a kind of abstract construction of depth. And once you get into the late 1950s and early 1960s, you really feel that modern, uh, mid-century modern, mid-century modernist um, design sensibility coming to the fore in Disney projects. And um, a lot of this has to do with the influence by an animator at Disney named Ward Kimball. You can see a lot of Kimball's stamp on a variety of projects during that period. Uh, one is 101 Dalmatians. Um, it's highly stylized imagery uh, and you know flaunting abstraction as stylization. Um, and also um, the, that film includes uh, some Xerox scan lines that were sort of left in as a kind of like sketchy stylistic effect in a very self-reflexive pointing to the to the animation uh, medium itself. There is another uh, project that has um, Kimball all over it as well uh, called Man in Space. It was a television series that was all about um, uh, not only rocket travel, but the prospects of uh, human beings uh, going into space and what that's like. And, um, you know, if you watch this, you, you get the sense that it's not just uh, simply a kind of nonfiction or documentary exploration of this, the state of the space race and uh, flight and the possibilities of, of, um, of human beings going into space, but it also is a kind of self-reflexive, playful meta-commentary um, especially the anti-gravity sections uh, on animation itself. And in a sense, you know, there, there's an understanding, a kind of winking at the audience that um, we, already, we already experience anti-gravity through animation and then through abstract mid-century modern animation, which you're watching right now. Um, 
And you know, in that sense, um, Disney is plugging into this larger sensibility at the time. And like I said, the history of animation is a history of of um, intuiting and playing with uh, the abstraction of cinematic motion uh, being created piecemeal, uh, one you know one frame at a time, and, and allowing all kinds of possibilities to emerge, but. This particular mid-century modern moment um, just saw uh, all kinds of designers across the visual arts uh, turning to animation and thinking about it um, uh, in a variety of ways. One of my favorite texts from the period is uh, by uh, two um, two people named John Hallis and Roger Manville. Um, the, the book is called Design in Motion, the Art and Technique of Animation, and it's from 1962. And there's a, gr a great um, excerpt I, I want to read for you that gives, gives you a sense of the way that the whole period thought about animation and its relationship to so-called physics or so-called physical laws. They write this, Special laws govern the landscape in which animation takes place. In real life, topography governs all of our movements, right? The, the lay of the land topography. In the animated world, it is our movements that govern our surroundings. There may be a forest in the landscape, but it melts in the path of a running creature. So, uh, you know, a landscape or a forest, it just melts away. Objects have neither weight nor texture, except what is needed to express their movements. So. Weight and texture are are kind of you know just just a few options on the palette, so to speak. Um, they're not fundamental and necessary. It's it's this kind of abstract form of movement that's first, and then you know weight and texture can be kind of added or subtracted or stylized in any way. And uh, and then they say this, which is you know perfect. Uh, I think. To, to put into relief the difference between mid-century animation um, and later uh, digital Pixar animation, they say explicitly, the laws of gravity exist only to be denied, right? So they're sort of there, but then you deny them, right? The, the, the tea, the scalding tea drop just sucks up and goes back into the teapot and kind of takes a life on of its own. And then they say height, width, and depth lose their actuality through the demands of movement. So movement isn't about gravity, isn't about height, isn't about width or depth per se. And movement is this other kind of design abstract relational process that can involve gravity, height, depth, width, etc., etc., but doesn't have to, right? Um, and I think this also gives a sense of how we can understand the kind of play with depth through multiplane animation during the period that it's not it's not this kind of contiguous z-axis physics uh, of the later period. So coming back to the cap system and the Disney Renaissance, I want to tell you a little bit more about what the cap system permitted uh, the Disney Renaissance to do and to uh, how it was able to kind of. Um, enable this pushing forward into a more hyper-Newtonian mode. Remember, we have a hyper-Newtonian blockbuster well underway uh, as the kind of aesthetic zeitgeist of the moment, but 
Disney is making 2D drawings, right, um, that have to be made from scratch. And, you know, if they're going to make films that are more hyper-Newtonian, they have to make formal decisions and technological decisions that create create this and manipulate their tools, which had been designed and been mostly mobilized for abstraction purposes toward this new um, hyper-Newtonian um, way of imagining the world. And I, I won't say that it that these films become um, as intensely and we might say fully or thoroughly hyper-Newtonian, but you can definitely feel them pushing in that direction. So one way in, in which uh, this happens is the cap system allows for a lot more um, multi-plane shots in depth, and they really exploit this. So in the golden era of Disney animation and all the way up to that moment, those multi-plane shots and sequences were, we could say, more rare. They would save them for the opening shot of the film and maybe maybe a sequence in the middle of the film or at the end of the film, but they would be kind of punctuations. They would be moments to show off. Um, it was not sustainable, um, even with the amount of laborers and the investment um, capacity that they had that was bigger than everyone else <laughs> um, producing commercial animation at the time. Disney could not make feasible um, uh, motion pictures, full-length motion pictures that were entirely made of these with this multi-plane camera. There are too many layers. There's too much drawing, too much, too much painting, too much manipulating. You know, if you're talking about you know five, six, seven, eight layers of animated um, animated drawings, uh, you're talking about one every 24th of a second, right? And so times seven or eight, right? And then you multiply that up and you try to get like 80 minutes of film. I mean, this would take forever. So um, it was it was a, a kind of rarity, a special moment here and there that was sprinkled in. Well, they could do that. They could do a lot more multiplane work because now it was virtual, it was digital, um, and it could be done through scanning and manipulation to the computer along with the you know um the color um color digitization which made that more automatic as well and so that allowed for more depth work uh again still a kind of layered look in the in the tradition of of abstract layered animation stands but but nevertheless kind of moving more in that direction of, of, of exploiting the z-axis and having more go on um, in and out and through the z-axis. Um, so along with this, there is a cultivation of what we've been calling the hyper-Newtonian quasi-diegetic camera, uh, a camera that feels more embodied, it feels more like it's there, um, less like it's a kind of abstract omniscience uh, that's associated with the kind of hovering or floating uh, aesthetic of classical Hollywood, but rather, um, you know, caught up, immersed, uh, and, and therefore the spectatorial experience is more immersed. Um, you know, they start playing with um, more with... Uh, effects that feel more like that kind of 70s 
and 70s, 80s um, live action cinema, post-continuity live action cinema work. So, you know, uh, um, things like racking focus, right? That like calls attention to the fact that there's a camera there. Uh, they start doing that. Um, you might see a scene where a camera kind of swoops across one seamless background as it follows the main character running through a scene. Even though the different parts of the background were in fact scanned separately, the, the CAPS technology made it possible to kind of string it all together and, and have the camera feel like it's swooping alongside in this uh, kind of expansive movement. And just in general, there's more of a, um, a, a shaky, jolty, materialist um, construction of mise-en-scene. Um, I want to read for you this article that was uh, um, uh, written uh, about what was going on with the CAP system, kind of as like an expose, a kind of for people in the industry look you know it was like look you know disney is using this computer technology and i'm going to tell you all about it so here, here's a quote from from that um in the lion king for example the artists are making particular use of a feature they call quote turbulence and then this is a a a, a quote um from from basically the computer graphics group or pixar um, they name Pixar at this moment. We based turbulence on work done by Ken Perlin, says Pixar's Han. Quote, I decided to put it in and see if anyone used it. All right, so put it in the software suite. They were in the middle of the production then, but now you see it in most all of the effects scenes in Lion King, end quote. Okay, and then here's the journalist again. You see it, for example, in waterfalls, dust clouds, and jungle fog. Other effects in The Lion King, ripples and reflections in water, backlighting, progressive color changes, camera effects that simulate a live action camera. Quote, the directors on Lion King wanted characters to go out of focus and get darker as the shape comes towards you, says Fulmer. With caps, the directors can now describe a look and watch as the color model artists create and change it interactively to help speed compositing the system knows which layers have to be changed and updates only those layers. So that's the end of the, the quote I wanted to read you, which of course has lots of little quotes in it from uh, the technicians. You get all of this, right? It's a more quasi-diegetic hyper-Newtonian camera and environment. You know, they, they have a, they had a, a feature of essentially like an algorithm that they called turbulence. Um, it's all about creating waterfalls and dust clouds and jungle fog and, you know, all of these material elements, the movement of water, um, and also the, the camera and, you know, lighting effects and rack focus and things like that. Now, as far as Pixar's own productions go, or proto-Pixar, I mean, we're kind of jumping ahead when we're talking about the cap system, uh, when it gets employed by um, by the Ren Disney Renaissance. They've, they've become Pixar uh, at that moment, but we haven't quite gotten there yet in terms of the story of uh, Catmull and Smith. So Catmull and Smith, are, they're in that uh, computer graphics group. They're doing all kinds of work with a lot of different um, uh, leading engineers and scientists, um, no real animators among them, <clears throat> other than just, you know, kind of knowing how animation works, but no, you know, people who made it their careers and their, their livelihoods to prim primarily do animation. 
So, you know, they made the Genesis sequence. They end up making a lot of industrial films. They make television commercials. Um, but as I said, Lucas just you know, kind of shrugged and uh, never really found use for them. Then in 1985, Lucas goes through a divorce. And that divorce basically leads to um, some kind of settlement with his uh, ex-wife uh, that ended up splitting their holdings um, between the two of them. So suddenly Lucas has a lot less wealth to play with. Um, and as a result, he ends up downsizing his operations. And so, you know, the, he, he wants to invest in the things that he sees that are going to be immediately useful and the things that are, you know, kind of dreamy, pie in the sky, maybe one day for him. Those things are not going to be sustainable to continue to invest in this kind of open R&D and computer graphics and, and animation. So uh, Catmull and Smith uh, basically one day said to George, do you mind if we try to just become our own independent company? Uh, and um, he said, OK, that you know he gave his blessing. And so they went out and looked for investors because they did, didn't really have a, you know, a, a monetary support base to, to keep, keep themselves going. So they talked to all kinds of investors and they got close to signing deals. And in fact, the closest deal that they um, came to was with General Motors, the car company. Um, and the person who was heading up the division of General Motors at the time was actually Ross Perot, who, uh, if you know anything about uh, 1990s uh, American politics, you'll know that he was uh, an independent uh, candidate who ran for president. Um, and um, his big, you know, his big selling point was uh, that, uh, you know, the federal government had been sloppy uh, and reckless with um, its spending and not balancing the federal budget. And he was going to come in and clean it all up uh, and balance the budget and make the government whole again. And of course, you know, those of you in this class uh, that have been following along and have learned about MMT um, know why. I would think that um, that was um, a, a terrible idea. But that was another moment. This is 10 years uh, earlier in, um, in the mid 80s. Uh, and Ross Perot is about to sign a deal uh, with General, um, through General Motors, right, working for General Motors, uh, with the, the Pixar company, the new Pixar company. And what they would do is they would just be part of, they become part of General Motors and they end up making graphics for like car demos uh, and car commercials. And that, that deal was so close. Um, and if you want to read about the details, you can go read about why it fell through, but it fell through. Um, but it's sort of amazing to think that if it had gone through that uh, Pixar, at least for quite a while, would have been primarily simply, you know, not even an independent company, just part of General Motors and who knows what would have happened. Um, so it fell through and uh, Catmull and Smith are just scrambling to find somebody to, to invest in them. Well, it just so happens that at the very same time, uh, Steve Jobs of Apple Computer, a company that he founded, um, and then it was he basically he was voted off the board. Uh, and so he was fired from his own company, essentially. And he was looking for new investments. He started a new computer venture called Next Computer, which kind of 
came and went. Um, but at the same time, uh, he invested early on, um, right after he uh, left Apple, in in Pixar. Uh, at first, Pixar was, uh, it took up the name Pixer, P-I-X-E-R, right, um, kind of on uh, based on the word pixel, um, but then they changed it to Pixar. Jobs invested an initial $10 million in Pixar, and that's in 1985 money. And then he would continue to invest roughly $2 million per year for the next 10 years. Pixar, during this 10-year period, did make some money you know, especially on that cap system. But costs were always so high because of the technology that they were buying and developing uh, that they just always outstripped revenue. So Pixar was in the red for a decade. And during that time, Jobs just continued <laughs> to just dump money, more and more money into uh, into the company and you know the way this often gets narrated is um, the main reason he did so was a he believed in them which you know that's a kind of hokey reason and another reason uh, was that it was a point of pride and especially the young Steve Jobs was very um, crass and brash and you know a no holds barred businessman cutthroat and you know he was bruised and wounded and his ego was wounded from the the apple uh incident um and you know it, it it was like a point of pride and kind of attached to his post apple identity and ego to be um uh to be the 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 chief investor uh and 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 head of business operations at pixar he didn't want to admit that it failed or say that it failed or folded up um because that was sort of part of his entrepreneurial identity I guess um, so that's one of the reasons why um, he spent so much money on it even though it was losing money for him again and again millions of dollars a year it also just incidentally shows us why once again uh, the um, in an MMT framework you know what what causes any kind of economic activity to continue is um, any kind of organizations access to credit rather than their revenue. Um, it also suggests uh, that, um, you know, in order to do R&D, open exploratory R&D, uh, you have to be able to kind of invest big uh, without, you know, without the profit, profit margin being a constraint, right? And of course, remember, think back that all of this is predicated on public spending and decades and decades of, of, uh, military industrial complex public spending right and you know uh, Lucas and uh, um, ILM and Pixar and Jobs you know they're all kind of piggybacking uh, on this public spending and turning it toward private ends um, and uh, in the age of neoliberalism um, but you nevertheless can get these uh, these lessons that um, look you know Pixar doesn't doesn't just decide, you know what, let's develop some technology and make Toy Story and it'll happen overnight. No, you know, it was a 20 year project of, of, of basically being in the red and not making money uh, in order to create Pixar um, and to create, um, or the, create the Pixar that we know that finally kind of emerges with 
um, Toy Story and all of the full-length uh, animated cartoons um, that um, we're all familiar with now. So anyway, during this time, they're working on the cap system, improving it, you know, working with Disney kind of in a hush-hush mode where, you know, they're not supposed to advertise the fact that they're, they're helping Disney uh, make computer films. Uh, and um, they're doing industrial work as well and, and television commercials. But what they also concentrate on is developing a series of short films that are designed uh, to do two things. To push uh, storytelling internally um, and to test out new technologies and new research um, that they're stumbling upon. And in fact, they still do this to this day and they try out new directors, uh, new story storytelling modes and new technologies and new algorithms um, by making these shorts and you know these shorts used to be kind of in-house and just for you know uh, computer graphics festivals and film festivals um, and now they're you know they've become uh, they've been used like uh, in a way that's a kind of return to earlier uh, Hollywood cinema where you'll get a short cartoon before the feature will play um, and as I said, Smith and Camel, you know, they, they loved and they knew all about animation, you know, kind of the basics, but they themselves didn't see themselves as superior artists and animators. And no one at Pixar really did, right? They were all physicists, engineers, mathematicians, programmers, uh, etc. So to remedy this lack along the way, about a year before, in fact, they got um, bought up by, uh, by Jobs, uh, or invested in, let's say, by jobs, um, they hired a young animator whose name was John Lasseter. At the time, John Lasseter was uh, a recently fired animator at Disney Animation. Uh, Lasseter actually came up uh, in art school going to CalArts. CalArts is a Southern California college that was started by Walt Disney to trained, train artists of all kinds, including animators, um, uh, to uh, work in the world of design and visual culture, etc., but also to, you know, basically create new generations of um, workers for his studios. And um, this is where John Lasseter really gets his start, as do many other major figures that, that uh, emerge in animation and even in Hollywood. Uh, in uh, the 1980s and into the 1990s. People like uh, Tim Burton, for example, and also uh, uh, Pixar directors like Brad Bird. Uh, so Lasseter is coming out of this context. He is a kind of star student animator. He won an unprecedented two Student Academy Awards, um, one year after the other in a row consecutively, um, and it just made him a kind of superstar. And so Disney Animation gobbled him up uh, at that point. But this was, you know, between the Golden Age and before the, the Disney Renaissance really uh, kicked off. And the studio was kind of losing money. It didn't feel fresh there. Lasseter himself felt kind of held back. They weren't really into his ideas very often. And ultimately, he got let go. Um, so... What happened was is that Lasseter 
um, attended some computer graphics conference or convention that was actually held on the Queen Mary in Los Angeles, uh, the big gigantic ship uh, that they rent out to you know conferences and parties and weddings and things like that nowadays. Uh, and um, Lassiter approached Cadmill, introduced himself, said, you know, I'm a Disney animator. I'm not sure if he told him he was fired. I don't think he did. Um, and, you know, they talked about computer animation and what they were trying to do at Pixar. And then basically Cadmill, you know, they were looking for an animator. <laughs> and uh, Cadmill hired him on the spot, basically. Uh, and then um, Lassiter moved to Northern California and started working with the Pixar group. They start then this tradition of creating these short films with Lassiter. Um, and for most of the early ones, it's Lassiter who's uh, really conceiving of them and, and directing them and working hand in hand with the computer engineers and the software developers to get done what he imagines um, he wants to do in terms of um, the animation style and the mode of storytelling. So the first short film that they start with is something called uh, The Adventures of Andre and Wally B. And this was made in 1984, right? Just a year before um, they uh, get taken up by, you know, go independent and get taken up by Steve Jobs. Uh, I've linked to uh, The Adventures of Andre and Wally B in, in recommended viewing um, in this module. Uh, take a look at it uh you know it it certainly has a kind of pixar feel but it's of a, a different moment and you know it's it'd be interesting to think about the ways that um there are there it is a kind of linear geometry and they are trying to create a renaissance space and they are trying to uh, you know weigh the whole thing down with um with physics and gravity but at the same time it, it let's say they're not as successful as maybe they'd like to be which for me is actually kind of interesting so it's interesting to think about the the kind of tensions and the openness to abstraction even as they're trying to work against them here um so definitely check that out again i don't have time to do a, a full reading of that but i wanted to make it av available to you um uh, and, and suggest that you explore, if you're interested in digital animation, explore these varieties of Pixar shorts uh, that were made during the period. And I should also say that, you know, Pixar isn't the only company that's making digital shorts. There are, there are others as well. Uh, and one, you know, has been referenced in your reading, um, the Turnock reading uh, thus far as well. So um, you had um, uh, Able and Associates, uh, the company, um, making not only digital television commercial shorts, but also their own uh, shorts, which feel a little bit different. And, you know, I think arguably able shorts are are still more uh, abstract very often in comparison to what the Pixar group is doing at this time. So they keep doing industrial projects, they keep making commercials, they keep making these um, these shorts, and eventually... Uh, Alvy Ray Smith uh, leaves Pixar and basically the story is that he just didn't get along with Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs notoriously, I mean I've never met him, I, I, I never knew him, but he is well known for being uh, 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 a kind of my way or the highway character. Apparently he softened up in his, his later life, um, but this is sort of maybe mid-life or mid-career, um, so he 
he, needless to say, <laughs> that Jobs and Smith did not get along, and eventually Smith couldn't handle it, and he left. And he started his own companies, and he consulted with uh, Sun Systems, and worked for um, JPL, and making all kinds of um, uh, kind of like film, you know, digital animations about space travel and things like this. So he kind of goes his own way. Uh, and so he's a founder of Pixar and he's a founder of Pixar's kind of fundamental vision and technology and, and all that. But he ends up basically not sticking with the company and he's not around for the, the kind of ultimate success and the realization of the ultimate dream was to create a feature length digital cartoon um, uh, using the technologies that they had uh, developed over the course of, you know, um, basically almost 20 years. So Pixar is not turning a profit. Jobs is continuing to pour money into them to save his uh, own ego, <laughs> his own self-worth. Uh, and, and actually um, in at a certain point in this period, Pixar does try to make a, um, a digital feature, but uh, they get kind of in over their heads. They realize after they've kind of got investors, they realize that they're not gonna be able to pull it off, that the computing power is not um, where it needs to be yet um, to get it, get it all done in, in a certain time frame with, with a certain amount of money. Um, and of course, all of this is about computing so much of this is about computing physics, right? Um, if maybe they weren't interested in computing physics, maybe the, that, those computations wouldn't take as much uh, computer power. That Maybe, maybe not, but that's worth noting along the way. And then it wasn't until 1993 that they finally signed a deal with Disney to make a film called Toy Story that would be directed by John Lasseter. Pixar would produce it, and Disney was going to help finance it, also distribute it, advertise it, and also do merchandising for it, including putting products and characters in the, the Disney theme parks and basically making it part of the Disney brand. Um, at this moment, uh, unlike George Lucas, uh, the, the Pixar folks didn't have the either wherewithal or the kind of market leverage, you might say, um, to secure the rights to the merchandising. Um, and that, that proved to be, um, at least in the short term, a kind of financial hindrance because you know when Pixar um, made a great success with Toy Story, um, they didn't see a lot of the revenue from, uh, from the merchandising. That would be all going to Disney. So they go into this, this movie, um, this production or pre-production process, knowing that they did not want to make a Disney fairy tale. Uh, they also didn't want to do what the, the, the Disney Renaissance films were doing, which was essentially they were musicals, right? With narrative number structures, um, narratives leading to, to musical numbers that often had you know singing and dancing in them. They wanted something else. They wanted it to feel fresh and different. Um, the, what's interesting about this moment is that the Disney execs are giving Pixar a lot of notes during pre-production and during the development phase. And, uh, Michael Eisner, who was the CEO at the time, 
he liked to use the word edgy a lot, which is funny because the 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 Disney Renaissance films are you know not not exactly edgy or dark, but they kind of kept telling the Pixar group to the to keep making it edgier and darker and basically more adult and you know um, a little like meaner or raunchier and um, this sort of took Pixar in this other direction that they didn't really want to go in, but they were, you know, just trying to make a film and they had a kind of worked out kind of moving storyboard, you know, demo of this thing. And at a certain point, everybody kind of shrugged, put their hands up and said, this is just not working. This is not, <laughs> this is not coherent. We might, we basically have to scrap this project. And then um, very quickly, the Pixar group said, no, we're going to try it again. They went back to the drawing board. They pitched a new version of the film with kind of new senses of the characters, a new plot. So it's funny to think about. Originally, Toy Story was a much more adult, much, much darker um, and cynical uh, kind of a story and uh, construction of characters. But that's not how it turned out, and that's not actually what the Pixar company wanted to do. So they were sort of delighted to kind of come back to their their sensibility and um, make something that, that was more in line with, you know, um, their spirit. And uh, there was tremendous skepticism in the industry and in the press about, you know, the, about this, this movie, you know, how, how could the public possibly like you know computer animation especially a full-length film that's made you know cartoons with computers it just everybody was like Ugh, you know this is this has got to be like so cold and so sciencey and god forbid they should try to create human characters it's going to be so awkward no one's going to like this this is just going to flop well indeed that was not the case the film um, you know, got stars like Tom Hanks uh, to, to, to be in it. Uh, and um, the film had a tremendous opening weekend and it just opened to rave reviews and it made a ton of money right away such that Steve Jobs with this plan in his back pocket the whole time immediately took Pixar public, right? Basically, um, in order to get massive financing for Pixar, you know, striking while the iron's hot, going to Wall Street and saying, we want to be a public company. We're going to offer shares in this company. You can help us finance our next ambitious projects and you'll do so because you see that we are making a lot of money now, right? So this immediately seeks private, massive Wall Street financing and Steve Jobs gets it. And shares were originally scheduled to be offered at $14 each, but Jobs insisted on the shares being offered at $22. There was so much anticipation uh, building up to this that even though Jobs insisted on $22, the shares actually opened at $47 a pop. They went as high as 49 and then they closed, in just one day, they closed at 39 so well above what they were supposed to start at at 14 um, and, you know, given the fact that, that Jobs purchased this company for $10 million and then poured $2 million, um, you know, a, a year for the next, you know, 9, 10 years, um, this paled in comparison to what the uh, ultimate so-called market valuation of Pixar became at that moment of it going public, 
which was $1.5 billion. So just overnight, essentially, Pixar became an immediate success and no longer, you know, uh, a, a drag for for Steve Jobs. And Steve Jobs owned at that time 80% of the shares in Pixar. So, um, you know, this made him extremely wealthy. And this is before he's, you know, turning back, rejoining Apple to help, you know, uh, uh, I, I can't say create because all he did was take the technology that other people made and repackaged it and did his entrepreneurial uh, things that he does. But this is before he went back and, you know, um, you know, inaugurated the the, the uh, kind of second uh, boost of um, Apple products um, like the iPhone and, and other things like that. So while Jobs, you know, is basically saw his computer project, Next Computers, kind of fall to pieces because it wasn't generating demand, um, Pixar became his saving grace, essentially. And they would go on to make a string of, you know, top hits uh, over and over again. Um, so much so, right, that um, finally they made a partnership with Disney in 2006. Uh, and Disney paid $7.4 billion for Pixar. Uh, and then um, it wasn't just absorbing Pixar, but also it basically took the Pixar uh, leadership and installed it at Disney as now Disney leadership. So John Lasseter, the animator director, um, becomes Disney's chief creative officer, uh, and Ed Catmull becomes president of Walt Disney Animation Studios, basically realizing the longtime dream of working with and for and basically running the company Disney um, that, that Pixar was you know, aiming at since the mid late 1970s or the, the people involved. Of course, Alvy Ray Smith is not involved, right? He, he, did, he, he didn't participate in this, um, which is always worth noting. So in the meantime, mainstream digital animation uh, is turning more and more toward this Pixar style, right? And especially on TV, uh, eventually on the internet, but especially when we're talking about mainstream Hollywood features, more and more this volumetric hyper-Newtonian mode that, that um, Pixar is developing over the years but really makes into a smashing success with Toy Story is just taking over the industry. You have all kinds of companies, you know, studios, developing their own ar 3D animation, digital animation arms um, to compete with Pixar. And what they do is they create kind of alternative styles, but their alternative styles are really just different variations on this basic linear Renaissance perspective, hyper-Newtonian gravitational aesthetic. And it's not just that uh, these other companies um, like DreamWorks Animation, for example, is uh, emulating the the fundamental hypernewtonian physics of, of Pixar. It's also that actually the master software, the rendering software, which basically puts everything together from all the various hardware and software that's used to create a movie in fragments, this rendering software uh, that everyone is using 
is produced by Pixar. And in fact, it's been around for quite a long time. Uh, it's called Render Man, capital R, Render, uh, all one word, capital M, Man, Render Man. It's a proprietary uh, um, renderer and um, it is designed to handle photorealistic 3D physics, essentially. Um, and like I said, it essentially coordinates among all the various kind of dominant um, hardware and software that, that's uh, used to build up a, a motion picture as a whole. And in fact, the use of RenderMan extends from those Disney Renaissance films, you know, like Aladdin and Lion King, Beauty and the Beast, all the way to the present. Um, so it it's not just the individual tools or the aesthetic sensibility, um, but also the kind of finalizing, synthesizing software, the rendering software that links all of this kind of hyper-Newtonian uh, animation and, and, and digital live action uh, effects. So in addition to animation, you see RenderMan being used on films like Terminator 2 Judgment Day, Jurassic Park, Avatar, Titanic, the Star Wars prequels, Lord of the Rings, and beyond. Okay, so that's the broader story of the emergence of Pixar. Now what I wanna do uh, before we really get into Toy Story uh, is to work through the various texts that I gave you to read uh, this week. Some that are um, directly related to digital animation, uh, others which are more broadly about uh, the blockbuster, and others that are more theoretical in nature. I want to take on these texts in this particular order. First, we'll talk about Stephen Prince's chapter, Actors and Algorithms, which is from his larger book, Digital Visual Effects in Cinema. We'll be reading more from that in the future. Then we're gonna look at Thomas Ogden's Primitive Edge of Experience, uh, an excerpt from that, and get into this uh, discussion, theorization of um, autistic structure, or what he calls the autistic contiguous position that I've been referencing for so long in this class, but we're finally uh, taking on directly. And then finally, Mark Karen's essay, Narration in the Cinema of Digital Sound, which is all about the emergence of and the aesthetics of digital surround sound uh, and how it's uh, different from the um, sonic aesthetics of the Dolby surround system that precedes it. But let's begin with Prince. So we're gonna be reading two chapters from Prince's book this semester. This is one about digital figuration or digital acting or what he calls digital performance. It's really about digital character animation. The next one we're gonna be reading is about digital environment creation. We could read these in either order. Um, I decided to start with uh, character animation um, uh, because I think it will kind of cue us up a little bit better for understanding what's going on in Toy Story. I assign Prince's chapters principally because they provide a helpful scholarly overview of the technologies and practices of mainstream Hollywood digital effects and animation and they provide really ample 
examples along the way so we know what kinds of technologies we're talking about, what kinds of films we're talking about. That said, I do not assign Stephen Prince's works because I agree with him. I think he has a rather limited, narrow, and um, asocial or anti-social or anti-historical way of conceiving of special effects, but he, he's a major contributor to the field, and I do think he can teach us a lot about the technology uh, along the way. So let's get into actors and algorithms this chapter. Um, Prince begins this chapter by confronting sort of two contemporary anxieties and myths about digital animation, digital effects, and especially character animation and digital performance. And this isn't just about um, you know cartoon animation. This is also about you know visual effects in, in live action cinema. He says um, that there's a big a lot of anxiety uh, that. Um, these kind of digital synth performances will replace human actors, um, you know, in the sense of like putting them out of work, right? And kind of making the, 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 uh, the profession of screen acting obsolete because the computers will just do it all somehow automatically. Uh, and then also this fear that, um, that digital performance somehow, in, it somehow destroys the, the central integrity of of screen performance and Prince convincingly in this case I think goes on to show that these anxieties are um, both ill-informed um, and, and and false for the most part um, uh, but also nothing new right so he he makes the case um, that if you look at the history of screen performance it has always been thoroughly technological right? and thoroughly about a, a process of technological synthesis and collaboration such that any kind of on-screen performance um, is always caught up with you know different new uh, often cutting edge machinery and techniques um, and it's always stitched up uh, out of fragments with lots of people participating whether it's you know um, makeup and hair uh, and and wardrobe on the set or it's about an editor in the editing room taking different takes from different times and stitching them all together. So he says these anxieties are nothing new and motion pictures have always been haunted by some questions um, that, that are that are like this. Um, and from there he says that you know this has to do with the specific character of acting for the screen which he compares to acting for the stage. He says Stage acting is traditionally speaking a very unique, singular, and integrated effort and experience, both for the actor and the audience. It's all happening in one continuous space-time as a unique event. Screen acting, by contrast, is much more fragmentary. It's much more of a technological synthesis and assemblage of many parts and many players, right? Um, I, I will say that I think uh, Stephen Prince is a little too uh, facile and and overgeneralizing when when it comes to describing stage acting. You know, there's still that's still a collaboration. There's still lighting and directing and um, you know makeup and hair and costume. I mean, you know, like uh, the, there's all kinds of things going on on the stage that I think it would be false to suggest that it is somehow some natural coherent thing. But I think that his comparison in relative 
juxtaposition to screen acting, it, it helps to make make sense of screen acting as one that is highly, highly technologized and synthetic, even if we might admit um, that other different kinds of things are going on that might not be might not be all that divergent um, in in the theater as well. So he uh, makes a terminological distinction. He says that um, acting is the art of behavior and display for an audience. He says performance is understood as the subsequent manipulation of that behavior by filmmakers or by actors and filmmakers together. So he has this sense that there's something called acting, which is about behavior and display in a kind of live, unique context. And then performance is something that is worked over and through by technology and, and multiple uh, participants. So he's saying performance is the total result of shooting and framing many takes, editing them together, adding sound, visual effects, etc. So if you think about the history of screen acting, it's really a history of screen performance and it's always been thoroughly technolo technological. From here, Prince will move on to outline what he considers to be the three primary ways that actors participate in mainstream digital cinema um, through performance. The first is as live action components of digital composite shots. He gives an early example, Naomi Watts acting um, as a live action actor alongside a digital King Kong. Second, they are motion captured, and then that motion capture information is used to animate a digital character. Motion capture, or sometimes it's abbreviated mocap, is essentially a very old technique uh, an analog mechanical technique that has been revised for the digital age. It is based on a process called rotoscoping. In rotoscoping, live action footage is traced by animators onto cells such that previously captured indexical forms and movements can then be manipulated in any number of ways while nevertheless um, expressing the original movements um, that were created by um, the live action actor. What mocap or motion capture does is it digitizes this process. And it does so not just by um, capturing the entire body, but rather it reduces the actor to a series of um, strategically uh, placed points that are usually put on a, on a suit on the body. And um, their moving suit becomes a kind of cloud, an abstract cloud of vertices or vertex points. And then those moving points are recorded by multiple cameras, usually in 360 degree space. And then computers are used to synthesize that information uh, and turn it into a 360 degree volumetric array. So, um, the probably most well-known example of a particular actor who has performed um, for mocap rendering is uh, Andy Serkis, uh, who uh, has played Gollum in the Lord of the Ring franchise. Um, the third major uh, digital performance mode that um, Prince will also sketch out um, he says is the most significant yet least recognized. He says it is the animator essentially becoming an actor, basically working with and 
and creating and moving a figure of their own making using software and hardware, um, and often doing so in reference to their own body or other people's bodies, right? So he says, this is the kind of digital performance that often gets overlooked, where we are used to thinking about Naomi Watts interacting with the digital King Kong, we're used to thinking about Andy Serkis um, doing mocap work to make a golem uh, come alive, but we don't think of uh, digital performance in terms of the animator who is directly creating something from scratch and making it um, come alive uh, on screen. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I necessarily believe that it's the most overlooked, but um, nevertheless, I think it's helpful to think of these uh, three different categories. From here, Prince goes on to explain and explore each of these categories, offering plenty of examples from contemporary cinema uh, to help us understand exactly what these technologies are, the techniques involved, and some of the you know um, major watershed um, moments um, that um, were produced from these things. Given our focus on Pixar cartoon animation this week, I want to concentrate um, Prince's um, exploration or our survey of Prince's exploration um, really in that third category, the digital character animation category. And in doing so from the point of view of our blockbuster course, it's going to require me to kind of sketch out for you um, what Prince's overall rhetorical assumptions are and the blind spots that are associated with his analysis that, that uh, I definitely want to critique, uh, as I suggested when I brought up Prince. I will say that uh, while Prince is right to stress that screen performance has always been technologically and collaboratively constructed, Prince holds a rather naive and um, I think socially conspicuous view of cinema history as linear and as progressive. He lays out in greater detail elsewhere in the book what he calls um, a drive toward perceptual realism. He says that Hollywood filmmakers from the very early days wanted to create films that felt perceptually real. He thinks he's being very sophisticated here because he's breaking with and, and putting pressure on the category of photorealism. He says photorealism is just one, one subspecies of the larger category that is perceptual realism. Uh, and for him, uh, perceptual realism is about um, giving the senses an experience that feels perceptually what he calls credible. And he says, even in cartoonish ways, the perceptually real uh, effects or animation has to feel credible as if for him, essentially, it feels like it's got a kind of physical presence and involves us in a material uh, way. So he insists that Hollywood has increasingly improved its techniques and technologies in order to attain greater and greater perceptual realism. And this process of ever continuing progress, he, he suggests culminates in the digital era. So there are several problems with the, this approach. 
First, as most critical historians will insist, we're talking about historians, period, not just of Hollywood or aesthetics. History does not move in nice, neat, linear, progressive ways. Two, as many of the same critical historians will argue, when one treats history as a progressive and linear development, there's often usually a conspicuous social, ideological, even political agenda, whether involved, whether it's explicit or implicit or, or it's conscious or unconscious. And what it essentially does is it naturalizes contemporary practices or technologies or values or social forms by suggesting that we were always destined to have them and that what we have today it has always always been in the cards and of course so why would you question what we have today when we've been working toward it the entire time so in this sense julie turnock is actually much more sophisticated than stephen prince she does a nice job of defamiliarizing effects in animation history uh, and not taking the contemporary um the contemporary ilm style effects which of course are you know continued through pixar and pixar is a development of ilm um, she refuses to tell a clean and and nice progressive story um, that basically has come out of ILM propaganda and in-house uh, historians. She says, you know, this is a messy history. It's riddled with unclean breaks and influences, and there's all kinds of heterogeneities, and you have to think through the aesthetics and technologies and the industry of particular moments and how they're relating to one another, and it's certainly not um, a, uh, a linear uh, project. Uh, she uh, also is very clear uh, to give previous moments or heterogeneous forms of special effects and animation, you know, their due as social forms. You know, she says it at one point in one of the chapters we read, it's like there was a real pleasure in these other, what we're calling more abstract forms of animation and effects. Like that was part of the point. Like the, the what we what we see is sort of uncredible or non-immersive or non-hyper-Newtonian or, you know, something that takes us out was actually what brought you in. It was the, the thing that was fun and exciting, um, but for just different values, right? Um, still, Turnock will make a mistake that Prince will make, um, uh, even though she, I think, pushes further than Prince in her project, in that she will not take the final step of saying, well, what are these aesthetic technological regimes and what do they mean in relationship to their social historical context? She doesn't pose that question. She doesn't have an answer to that question. And certainly Prince doesn't do that either. So Prince has got a kind of, he's got like two major blind spots here. He's projecting this linear history that Turnock is, is helping us reject and he is also not thinking about any kind of social, historical changes or values or investments. And that's what we want to be doing uh, in our course. Now think about that quotation that I read from Design in Motion, that 1962 uh, design and animation um, text, right? Let's compare that to the way that Stephen Prince will write about <clears throat> digital animation in a film like Pixar's Ratatouille. Quote, 
Crafting the film's virtual performances entailed building the algorithms to simulate these properties of real-world physical behavior, albeit exaggerated appropriately to achieve a cartoon look. Virtual performance in this context entails more than directing or animation, the actor or the character. It is an art of cosmogenesis, of total world design, the programming of an array of movement extending from facial expression to the visualizing of hard and soft surfaces and the visualizing of collision behaviors among them. Virtual performing requires continuing sustained analysis by the animator to achieve believable characters performing in accordance with known physical laws. And in parentheses, he says, which themselves have had to be programmed and created inside a fictional world and in accordance with the stylistic demands of the particular film. So, you know, he's uh, totally naturalizing uh, that animation has to be perceptually real, as he calls it, which means physical, which means uh, in accordance with uh, physical laws. Uh, and then he, he suggests that all this leads to the question of credibility. And he thereby suggests that credibility or the believability uh, of digital effects or any kind of uh, moving image effects or animation is some transhistorical phenomenon and that it is in, inherently about physics. You know, and if you compare, if you compare this to pre-70s animation and pre-70s effects, like you have discussed outright in Design in Motion, this is just not the case. It's not transhistorical. And they, they were not, Design in Motion is, is not saying, oh darn it, we wish we could be more physics-based and hence more believable. Uh, they're, they're saying, no, we have a totally different values. We don't have that value at all. You know, believability isn't even a question um, in that way. There's other kinds of um, other kinds of pleasures and social values involved. You know, you could also go deeper in comparison, and you can compare uh, Prince's claim, which is really you know not just Prince. This is something that everyone starts to say in the blockbuster neoliberal and digital animated film age, this, you know, this value of believability, you can, you can go back deeper and compare it to, you know, other systems of belief, right? So, for example, in the West and, and in other, you know, theological and religious traditions, typically believability, believability is distinctly opposed to physics. A believability, or it's, it's supposed to be greater than physics. God in the Western, you know, Christian tradition, for example, um, is treated as that kind of transcendent whole that is irreducible just to like individual bodies or forces and things like that, right? So the very, the very category of believability is being historically transformed here and it has meant the opposite at different points in the history of the world and the history of the West. And of course, none of this is acknowledged and none of its social historical values and shifting contexts are, are acknowledged by Prince. Prince will just sort of 
follow the contemporary tendency in a very unreflexive, uncritical, naive way and just say that, you know, basically we've always wanted this when in fact this just is absolutely impossible to establish. Now I want to get into what Prince describes as the technological and technical process of digital character animation. And what we're going to find is that these tools, these technologies, these techniques uh, are not only built in hypernewtonian ways, but they have they have a whole kind of imaginary and a language which um, suggests, uh, I would say, deeper social meanings and not just simply technical ones. So the entire process, Prince will tell us, is referred to as character rigging. Rigging, that's R-I-G-G-I-N-G. The term rigging suggests quite a bit about how this process is conceived, how it's designed, how it's used, and how it's made meaningful. So in general, the, the term rigging is both a noun and uh, it's a verb, it's uh, equipment, and it's also the action of designing and installing equipment. And usually this is in preparation to move an object. Um, when typically we think about it, we think we we think about it uh, in um, when it comes to seafaring and boating and that kind of thing. And um, very often we'll talk about a team of riggers that design and install lifting and rolling equipment that are needed to raise or roll or slide or lift objects, right? Like with cranes or or blocks or tackles. In particular, the term has been used primarily. Um, in terms of sea craft, rigging on this view comprises a system of ropes and cables and chains which support a sailing ship or a sailboat's masts. In applying this term to character animation and the very equipment, the tools and the technology, and the verb, <laughs> um, rigging gives gives this process a very material and also we could say mechanistic sensibility and really tries to physically ground and make um, make mechanically Newtonian uh, the whole process of character animation. This is how Prince describes it on page 110. Quote, the animator as actor literally builds the performance through a process called character rigging. Note that word literally. He'll say that several times in, in this particular chapter um, as if, you know, really emphasizing some kind of direct and immediate physical relationship, even though he knows very well and will also, you know, admit that this is about abstract coding. The character is built First is a wireframe model, right? a wireframe model that's a, a volumetric um, you know, three-dimensional um, uh, frame, right? That is composed of, of thin lines between points. Of course, this is all data, and it's data that you could say actually is more like a two-dimensional array that is translating into uh, a kind of three-dimensional impression along the lines of Renaissance perspective and vanishing points and whatnot. Um, 
But nevertheless, this is it, this is conceived of and treated as if it was a volumetric object, even though it's not. Coming back to Prince, he says after the character is built as a wireframe model, he, he continues, it is assigned joints as the first step in constructing a functional skeleton. So it, it, it gets joints, right? Hinges, very mechanistic. Uh, it's like 17th century um, uh, uh, physics here. The joints are positioned inside the wireframe model and are programmed to rotate and twist in an anatomically correct manner. This is his appeal to biology and physiology here that we've heard uh, elsewhere. This is critical, he says, for achieving credibility with digital human and animal creatures. And so we're back to that term, this, this faith, this theology, right? It's a theology of physics, of biology, of mechanism, of, um, of physiology. He continues on page 111. One, once joints are in place, bones are placed to connect the joints, and those are programmed to work according to a hierarchy of action involving parent and child objects. So he's talking about how a whole hierarchy of, you know, essentially what, what, is, what has more causal emphasis, what has more mass and weight is programmed into these joints and the relationships between the parts. He says forward kinematics, forward ki kinematics flow from parent to child. The parent is the, the weightier and more causal um, part of the body and the child is the, the, the lesser. Uh, he continues shoulder to upper arm to forearm to hand, for example. The animator moves the character's hand and the upper body skeletal structure responds appropriately. So this is about um, automating movement such that the, the animator can uh, come in and move one part and then the rest of the parts will follow. And in this quote that I'm working through here, he's not going to talk about reverse kinematics, but reverse kinematics works the other way, but with the same principle. But let's turn back to the quote again. When the bones are in place, connective tissue is added muscle and tendon are programmed to have the right amount of elasticity with muscles flexing and building and sliding over the bones. Once muscles and tendons are articulated, character rigging proceeds by adding skin and it too gives a performance varying in tightness and elasticity and in relation to underlying fat, depending on where in the body it is. Skin will behave differently when located over a kneecap than when covering the wattles beneath a portly man's jaw. The animator has to consider these differences and build them into the performance." End quote. So what we're seeing here is, you know, a reduction of the very initial imagining of character uh, in an animated film to this this rigging of physiology with all of its parts already thought to be volumetric already thought to be highly physicalist from here prince explains that physics-based lighting algorithms are added including what is called subsurface scattering which mimics the way that light waves penetrate the skin and bounce around 
within the skin, within its various surface layers, and then refract back out some of them into the environment. And that gives the skin of a character a certain kind of um, naturalistic glow that one associates with so-called real life, so-called normal um, uh, skin tones. And then there's the interactions between characters and other characters and their environments. And for this, more algorithms are created that are called deformers and collision detection algorithms. They're written and they're deployed in a variety of ways. Prince's rhetoric of digital character animation celebrates the infinite possibilities here. However, like we've seen with ILM's rhetoric in the late 1970s and 80s, these infinite possibilities are rigidly bounded to a finite physics. Sadly, this tends to reduce character animation in the digital era to a kind of digital puppetry. Now saying this, I don't mean to downgrade puppetry as a, a medium and an art of expression and social creation. Um, nothing wrong with puppetry. But I do wanna point out that animation is um, really an abstract process and an abstract process, process of writing in motion or writing light in motion and that it's irreducible to, to physical puppetry. Um, there's never any problem with um, exploring puppetry through film, right? That's not the point either. It's that the, the technologies the, and the techniques and the language that we use to imagine character animation in the digital era before we even come up with a particular example the very conditions of possibility have already reduced things to physical puppetry. So while, while there's a, uh, often a rhetoric of infinite possibility and now that we have a computer, we're not limited by live action and practical effects or even the optical printer anymore, nevertheless, there's a kind of doubling down on finitude, a doubling down on actually constricting what can be done. These rules cannot be broken or transcended. Um, you can use that equipment in alternative ways, but it, it hardly ever happens. And I think in part because that the equipment is designed to naturalize and essentially eradicate these decisions, these, these alternative possibilities. Um, when when the, the tool that you're working with never asks you if you want to do anything different, then you're less likely to do so. Now, before we move on from Prince, I, I do wanna say one more thing about his rhetoric of faith and credibility and belief. And it's, again, not just his, it's he's really expressing a whole era um, a whole era's commitment to um, this kind of uh, rhetoric. And, you know, I often state that the way that this hypernewtonian phenomenology works in relationship to this big question of money is often indirect, right? That first and foremost, it's a matter of uh, a phenomenological relationship to the world in general and excluding abstraction from that phenomenological relationship and thereby unable to perceive or imagine the kinds of 
monetary structures and you know possibilities that modern monetary theory um, uh, makes perceptible and thinkable and politicizable. But actually, you know, in thinking about character, digital character rigging and physics, and thinking about the rhetoric of belief around it, um, you can you can draw a little bit more of a a a, a connection, a linguistic connection uh, to the problem of money. You know, the the word credibility uh, comes from the Latin word uh, credere, which means to believe. And um, as you know, some of us might be aware, it is the same word uh, from which we get the word credit, right? And MMT will remind us that money is nothing other than credit. It's a credit relation or a credit and debt relation, two sides of the same proverbial coin. And so it's interesting to think about these digital physics of character rigging and character animation and you know physical light uh, algorithms being made to use physical light that we we overtly say it, it's not credible if it doesn't look hyper newtonian um, one could say that this uh, informs our uh, understanding um, and so-called belief in money as well, uh, especially during the neoliberal era, that um, essentially if money doesn't seem to behave or isn't imagined to be uh, acting like a finite physics, then it can't be, it can't be real or true or, or uh, meaningful or powerful, right? So if the state, uh, for example, uh, the federal government, seemingly creates money without uh, without recycling it through taxes or borrowing, um, somehow uh, it can't be real. It's sort of fake money. It's not real money. Um, so you know, th there's I think a lot of a lot of linkages here that are that are you know indirect, but still are um, carving out a neoliberal world that that cannot imagine outside of this. Um, faux finite um, physics um, and and you know both money and these digital animation technologies they're all made of you know ones and zeros uh, digital equipment networks um, you know display technologies right they're I mean they're all part of the same kind of uh, overarching media apparatus and um, you know I, I'll say it's crazy to me and 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 tragic and unjust that we cannot seem to uh, imagine this in another way. And that will conclude part one of my lecture on Toy Story. Stay tuned for the upcoming release of part two, where uh, we will dive into the film itself along with some, uh, some more um, theory to help us along the way. Thanks again.